Hi, I'm Sage. I'm here with Adam, and this time another question: Why is game balance a thing? Yeah. The, so Vincent posted something on Twitter the other day about uh, game balance, and it not necessarily meaning the same thing in role-playing games as it does in board games, for instance. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, when you first pitched this topic before I saw the tweet, uh, I was thinking balance in the sense of uh, Go or chess or something like that, uh, you know, a, a balanced game where uh, no player has too significant an advantage, and um, Vincent's example does actually include Go, but it, it kind of reframes balance. Um, well, go ahead. Yeah, sure. Uh, so this time uh, I actually have Vincent's tweet for reference to uh, help make sure that we're accurately representing what he said, uh, though last time apparently Epi said that we were more or less on base with our interpretation of his tweets off the top of our heads. Uh, so Vincent's uh, point is that the crucial point of your game's balance is its tipping point. Even with Go, there's a first mover, uh, and after that the game is, uh, in his words, a slow, ir irrevocable, unfolding catastrophe. Which, yeah, that's pretty much how my games would go. <laughs> uh, there's no possible return to the balanced state. Which is an inter interesting way to pitch balance. Um, he compares it to uh, you don't want it to be uh, a marble in a bowl, finding the, the balance point and staying there. Uh, equilibrium is the point of lowest energy. You want to design, uh, his quote, design an avalanche instead. Yeah, in, in games you end up with two, two big dynamics. You have positive feedback loops, like Monopoly, where you gain money, and that helps you make more money, which helps you make more money, and then it should accelerate fast enough that you just slam into the end game and win. Uh, Monopoly doesn't tend to go that way very often, but whatever. Uh, or you have negative feedback loops, like in Mario Kart, where I'm behind, so I get the better items, and I blow up the people in front of me, and then hopefully get a little farther ahead, but then I get worse items, so... There was an interesting point, just tangentially, about Mario Kart. Uh, apparently, the designers say that they tested yeah. it without blue shells, and it was awful, uh, which is not strictly about RPGs, uh, but it's a very interesting game design insight, uh, assuming that they're they're accurate about that. Uh, I, I am I am very happy with Nintendo on game design, but uh, I think something... So, yeah, that, that got cut up on Reddit as well, and a bunch of people... Mario Kart is not a racing simulation. No. And if it was, Blue Shell would be a horrible idea. But because it's not, it's a party game, Blue Shell is a good idea. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, probably actually great design for the intention. I mean, yeah, it's a beautiful design. Uh, I hate Blue Shells, but it's a beautiful design. <laughs> don't, I don't hate the design, I just hate that they hit me all the time. Uh, are you saying you're so good at Mario Kart that you're always in the lead? I'm only uh, only when I'm playing with people that are not working here, because apparently I'm horrible. I was going to say, I'm playing with you here, and uh, I, I do not think that we saw you getting Blue Shelled too much. No, no. Uh, so now that we've gone off on tangents <laughs> about Mario Kart, and uh, we had Monopoly in there, the other, like... Well, so returnable. The the reason that I start with uh, board games and video games is because my first thing that I want to talk about is uh, coin games, war games. Sure. Um, because the way that balance is a thing in these, in a lot of war games, multiplayer war games, is that they are very much not. Mm -hmm. And the only way that they can maintain any kind of semblance of I actually have a chance to win in this game. Uh, which is why balance is a thing in board games, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you wouldn't actually care about balance if you didn't care about 
oh yeah, everybody has a chance of winning right up until the end of the game. Yeah. That's the that's the thing you really care about in these games, in competitive games. You don't care about, oh yeah, I have the same powers as you. You care that I have a chance of winning and you have a chance of winning. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, otherwise, what's the point? Like, you should just resign at that point. So a lot of war games are actually horribly tilted to one faction or another at various points in the game, and the only way you can come back is by ganging up mm-hmm. on that person. And some people really like that dynamic, and some people hate it with a passion. In some ways, that's the uh, implicit blue shell. That's mm-hmm. the, uh, your blue shell is everybody else agreeing to take out the guy in the lead. Yep. Uh, yeah, so just to jump back and, and clarify terms, because we've talked about them before, but not sure. always in detail. Coin games here uh, are a series of uh, war games... I mean, war game. Uh, I've heard them they're, described as Euro influenced no, as well. They are they are conflict games. Uh, they're a little lighter than many conflict simulation games, um, but they are counterinsurgency games uh, that are slowly but surely pushing the boundaries of what people could consider counterinsurgency. Uh, but the I mean, it, for a particular example. Um, a distant plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, the funny thing about these these games, so a distant plane being Afghanistan, and you've got uh, the U.S. government and the Afghani government and the warlords and the Talibani, and they all hate each other and love each other, and it's a wonderful thing. Um, there's a coin game that just came out that's only two players. And it's really interesting approaching it because as soon as you drop to two players, you lose the possibility of a coalition of players attacking somebody, mm-hmm. and you are entirely on your own. So the dynamic of the two-player one is is very different. Having played several of these games with you, uh, the two-player one is the only time that I've won, I believe, uh, because it was so much easier to focus on one other player. You didn't have to worry about uh, the implicit blue shell of everybody ganging up on you, and the way these uh, asymmetrical victory conditions typically work is there's a... Uh, each faction cares about different things, and those things all tie together in certain ways, but uh, they only to a certain degree. Uh, so you end up caring about your thing, and then somebody else does their thing, and it has a side effect on yours, and uh, once it's down to two players, you're much more directly in conflict over the same things all the time. Right, and uh, so the, the crazy thing about conflict games... Uh, is that they tend to be presented as games that you're trying to win, but many of them are much better role-playing games, where the point of it is to bring out, you know, what happened historically, how could it have gone, uh, what kind of crazy alt-history things can we go through, you know. I was playing a War in the Pacific game uh, a couple of days ago with my friend John, and because of the roles that he made early... It just sunk any chance of the U.S. actually doing anything useful in the Pacific, <laughs> uh, which is super ahistorical, but whatever. And because of that, and because it w- we were playing it as a war game, we ended up calling it really early because it seemed like it would be boring to play it out. Because as much as the narrative is really interesting, like, you know, here we sent all of these people out from Hawaii and nobody came back the game wasn't interesting anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I think that figuring out where you're going to stand on that line is a huge piece of how you approach balance in game design. Yeah, I agree. Um, The 
So my my examples come down to one general point, uh, and then two kind of more specific takes on balance. Um, and the first one is all about that stance. Uh, so my first like game on balance is D and D, but specifically across editions, because you can see a real shift in different types of balance. Uh, the early D and D is. To some degree, uh, the downward spiral in that uh, you start out with all your HP and all your spells and all your items and everything, and then you go into a dungeon and you pretty quickly lose a lot of those things. Um, and the the imbalance there is kind of the game. And then you, you look at 4th uh, edition, which technically you're still losing uh, spells maybe. Kind of most most things were more or less at will, but um, you're you're losing some of your resources. But there's a feeling of more of a, a steamroller, partially because the abilities tend to stack up. You you get going, and you've you know set up this person by adding this condition, so now they can do their cool thing, and it becomes more of a, like a virtuous cycle of everybody kind of. And then you get XP and you become cooler, which is also in Moldvay, but feels very different because that XP was so hard won as opposed to like we bashed another round of goblins with our awesome powers. Um, yeah, I think fourth fourth was interesting because it felt like a miniatures game. Yeah. And it's like, here's all of your abilities and we're going to play out this miniatures game. And because it was a, felt like a miniatures game, the DM was playing one side of the miniatures game, you're playing the other side, we're going to make all of these units balanced. Mm -hmm. The DM is supposed to throw monsters at you that are generally challenge rating appropriate. Like, it was built to be descent and not basic deity. Yeah, and so the interesting thing there, um, I would say that third edition is in some ways even more balanced, and uh, it's that sense of balance that can sometimes hinder the game um, the the they're the games that in some ways come closest to um, stasis where by the rules as written the GM provides you with a challenge that is roughly appropriate to you know every fight eating up what is it a third or a fourth of your resources and then you get a chance to rest after that and there's there's certainly risk and uncertainty there but um, the the thing that I was thinking about is the the D and Ds that have worked the best for me are the ones where something feels like your characters are out of the norm. Like the reason that you're playing this particular adventure is because this is where kind of adventure starts. Um, which is kind of the imbalance. The the basic imbalance in RPGs is the question of why did we start playing now as opposed to some other point in these players' lives. Um, also called the kicker uh, through I believe. Um, some of Ron's games, uh, I believe Sorcerer first, uh, but it's this idea of uh, there's some event or some some reason that we're going to start play at this moment as opposed to any other moment in these uh, characters' lives. Um, and the, the opposite of that is the you all meet in a tavern, which is we just start on kind of like a day like any other. Um, and the interesting middle ground there, coming back to Vincent as the person who said this, of course, Vincent wrote Apocalypse World, and Apocalypse World tells you to start with just kind of following the characters around, because it's a game that is so uh, deliberately set to make things go out of balance that you can actually start with, like, oh yeah, sure, like, try to put the marble at the uh, top of the curved arc or whatever, because it'll immediately roll in some direction. Um, yeah, so that the... The difference there of like adventures or heroes uh, 
as people who are out of balance, like everybody in D&D across editions is kind of a person who is um, out of the norm. They're out of balance with the world around them in some way. Um, it's not generally a game where adventurers are, uh, it's like a, a day-to-day job that you expect to come back from. The entire kind of conceit is that this is an adventure. It's either going to spiral up into defeating gods or whatever, or it's a constant fight against a spiral down. Um, yeah, there's another piece of balance in, in D&D and in all these games that is a spotlight question of balance, mm-hmm. right? Because of the vagaries of, of dice or because of various character builds, it can feel like due to game balance, this player is getting more spotlight than you were getting. Um, or it can feel like this player is just, they're the star because they're going to win everything. And so while I get to do more, my stuff just isn't worth it. And why not just let this person play the entire time? Yeah, it's interesting because the I think in some ways the best balance for... Even in that kind of balance, the best balance for RPGs is imbalance. A lot of the things that people look for when they talk about, uh, you know, this game wasn't balanced is, I think, often because the game is overbalanced almost. You know, if uh, it's really clear that everybody is supposed to be doing close to the same amount of damage and everything's very predictable, then the one outlier there where somebody messed up their math is now imbalanced, in quotes. Whereas the alternative where uh, everything is more deliberately out of whack, where you know that everything's going to crap all the time and uh, everything's going crazy, you you aren't looking for that sense of, well, this person did two more points of damage on average than I did. Right. Um, so, I th- yeah, the best balance in RPGs is imbalance, uh, not just for the putting things into motion reasons that Vincent talks about, but for the, the moment-to-moment play, I think. So is that the core point, or and then that, you're that gonna was, go? That was my introduction. Like the D and D as an imbalanced game is better than D and D as a balanced game. Oh, I absolute agreement. So, so what's a finer point? Okay, a finer point. Uh, so then I tried to think about imba- types of imbalance. Um, so I think there's uh, the interesting one that I arrived at is the two types of imbalance that I see, kind of a positive and negative imbalance, actually uh, really clearly map to um, kind of one-shot games versus longer campaign games, uh, or at least what feels good to me in each of those. Um, So, for example, a downward spiral game, uh, a really great example that I've been playing a lot recently is Torchbearer, which has uh, a rule called The Grind, where um, when you're in an adventure, on an adventure in a dungeon, it pretty much assumes that you're in some kind of, like, actual enclosed space, um, just the act of being there is wearing you down, and every so often you take another condition. Uh, and these conditions kind of get progressively worse. Because um, you start out the adventure with the one positive condition fresh, which everybody forgets about, but it actually gives you extra dice. And then you go from that to uh, hungry and thirsty, which is relatively easy to get rid of. You can just eat your rations, but you don't go back to fresh. You just go back to no conditions. Uh, and then as time goes on and you accumulate conditions through other means as well, you keep on getting worse and worse conditions until you could end up dead. Um, which is this really great model for... Uh, kind of a spelunking kind of adventure. I know that um, Tor and and Luke, who helped him with the design, were were looking at not just uh, kind of adventure fiction, but adventure, uh, you know, accounts of people going into huge caves and uh, weird underground locations and water-filled caves and all this stuff, um, and kind of trying to lean on that as well. And it feels like it, that imbalance, the fact that you are 
that, that everything is stacked against you, that just by doing this, things are going to get worse, uh, really drives the game. You spend the entire time trying to get what you want before things get too much worse. Um, so I'll talk about my Diamond Spiral game, which is Dread. Yep. Uh, it is... the So the crazy thing about balance is that in RPGs... In the RPGs that I like, balance is controlled by the people at the table more than the numbers on the page. Mm -hmm. Like, I've talked before about how the way I like to play Dread is I'll do a whole bunch of double pulls in the beginning just to get to the tower to the point where everybody's a little bit more worried that it's actually going to fall. Yeah. Uh, Because if you take too long, and I play with really good Jenga players, (laughs) uh, then it's there's too much of that... Um, gosh, what's it called in Hero with a Thousand Faces? Uh, there's too much of that normalcy mm-hmm. at the beginning, and you don't get to horror and, and dread, right, uh, in the middle. But but that's that's balance that's super controlled by me, and also by the players, because they're allowed to say, no, I don't, I don't want to make that pull. Mm-hmm. And being able to control, you know, the moment when you are willing to make something crazy happen is just this really interesting piece of, okay, well, I don't want to die yet, but I'm not really comfortable making that pull. Maybe somebody else can do something else to make it happen. Oh, but if I don't make that pull, I'm going to get my leg gnawed off, and that's not going to be a great time for me. Maybe I should just knock it over entirely. And you get those, and and it's just seeing the tower get to that point, because if you play Jenga enough, you see it, mm-hmm. you see the moment when it's about to fall, and you know one more person's just going to have a worse time. And I feel like, so Torchbearer does this with checkboxes, and you see yourself getting a little worse and a little worse, but it's for whatever reason, it's just different having it be a physical this huge physical thing in the middle of the table. Yeah, the so that's interesting because that runs actually. That's the dread is the counterexample to uh, my point of downward spirals being great for longer games because dread is a very like capped off game. Um, because just to throw in my my third answer uh, to kind of loop, loop around the discussion. Uh, we keep on hitting our third answer earlier and earlier, uh, is <laughs> games where it's more of a uh, potential of a restoration of balance. Um, so Torchbearer starts out with things comparatively under control. The only thing that's really out of balance is that you're in a situation that will get worse eventually, but you're relatively in control. You, you've got the, the fresh condition that gives you an extra dice, you've got all your skills and abilities and items and everything, and it goes downhill from there. It's weighted to make things go downhill. Whereas um, something like Siron or Kagematsu or Our Last Best Hope, everything starts in a pretty bad situation already, and it'll probably get a little worse, but the game is kind of set to um, weight things so that they eventually return back towards kind of a new normal at the end, and you have more or less a clear ending of, okay, everything is resolved, uh, we've reached a point of balance. Sure. I guess maybe that's the the difference that I was seeing here, is that um, games where there's the potential to return to balance sure. are games that are playable in shorter, or, or better fit for shorter sessions, whereas uh, the more the game is going to 
always push out of whack, where there's no potential, uh, you can never balance that marble at the top of the pyramid. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the games that, to me, feel great for campaigns because there's, there's never really that point of resolution um, built into the game, but occasionally you get through long play in this magic moment this sense of, wait, we actually did it. We, we balanced the... the For marble. just a moment. Yeah, and then you cut the game there. I've, yeah. I've had a few games end this way, uh, and they're always my fondest memories of games where everything is horrible and out of whack, and then there's this moment where we find equilibrium again through you know crazy plans and crazy actions and mm -hmm. lucky rolls, um, and it actually feels like an ending to a game that wouldn't have one built in, whereas any game that kind of has a built-in return to equilibrium is a game that has a, a clear ending you can find. Yeah, I think Dread's, Dread's deal is you start that in marble at the top, and it's never going to come back. It's yeah. never going to come back up, and at some point it's going to hit the floor, and then the game's over. Yeah. You know, most of my games of Dread uh, have killed everybody, and that's how the game ends, and it's a beautiful thing. And then you know the game is over because everybody's dead, so it's no big deal. Yeah, I... I think all of my games of Dread have gone the same way. That's an interesting... Does, are there many people out there playing Dread where they get to the end of uh, a game of Dread and there's still somebody alive and they're like, okay, well, this is this is it. I've had one person escape in one game. Okay. Uh, it was it was good because it was they, they just barely escaped. Mm -hmm. But, you know, most of the games you get close to the end and everybody's watching and there's one or two people still alive and those one or two people... The players really want the characters to die. Yeah. Because it's just like it just feels like the correct way right. to end yeah. it, right? And so I think it has this this way of pushing people that direction, mm -hmm. um, which is which is good times. But yeah, like Torchbearer, you have the possibility to start unchecking those boxes. Yeah. Like I think that's the big thing. In Dread, you're never gonna put those th those pieces back in the middle of the tower is not going to happen. So, but so long as you continue playing the game, you never really reach the same equilibrium for your character as if they had never started playing. Sure. Uh, like if if you made a torchbearer character and then never played them, I guess they have no resources, which would be a problem for them going forward if they never went on an adventure. Uh, but they're pretty much in a situation where from here on their life gets interesting. Sure. Um, whereas. It, th and there's no real way out of that. Like, maybe you get such a big haul that you can get the lifestyle to, to not want to adventure anymore. Right. But even with those uncheckable boxes, uh, it's kind of like Dread, where um, the tower falls once, and then you set it up again to, like... You know, somebody, and then you make a bunch of pulls to set it off balance. But well, yeah, 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 you, you set, set it up again and it's pretty clean. Yeah, uh, that's exactly what I mean. Like you, you never go back to the state of it being completely clean and nobody caring and we're just not going to pull anymore. Uh, that's not really a thing in the game. Yeah, because, well, the, the other thing about, about Dread is that there's a lot more DM control. So Torchbearer, you know... Maybe, maybe this is not how the rules are written, but I would feel weird as a DM saying, okay, you're going into the dungeon whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, but in Dread, I'm perfectly comfortable saying, yeah, you rip open the uh, spacecraft door and walk in and there's an alien that jumps out at you and it's going to rip your leg off. And, you know, if you don't want to pull, that's fine. Okay, it rips your leg off. Let's keep going. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you tell me when you want to pull and you can take some initiative here. Yeah, I... 
I think that's a difference, but I would actually say that Torchbearer, if you don't start them, if you don't kind of say, okay, you're entering the dungeon as the start of play, uh, the game doesn't really go... Like, it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't quite work. I mean, I guess you could like immediately go to town and they don't have any resources, so they're in a pretty rough situation there, and then maybe they... I mean... It's it, not what the game wants to be, right? Yeah. Uh, like, it, it's like the... Uh, the thing about D&D characters, speaking about character balance, is the thing about those characters where you can build one that is just completely busted if you use the right splat books. Mm-hmm. And the answer to this is, well, the DM says no, because that's not how this game works. And I think that the Torchbearer is similar. Like, you start Torchbearer, you're going in, because that's why you're playing the game. Yeah. You're... And then it's the, the you meet in the tavern thing. Like, if, if uh, everybody could be in equilibrium, they could meet in the tavern and just say, like, oh, well, we had a nice drink. We all go back to where we were. <laughs> good uh, session, guys. Good session, guys. Like, it, it, there's not a whole lot of game there. Yeah, um, totally. The example that sometimes gets tossed around for this is uh, in Super's games, um, the more interesting thing to play in a lot of ways is the villains as opposed to the heroes, because the heroes are all about... Uh, in this interpretation, I'll, I'll get to my my arguments <laughs> against it in a minute. Totally. But uh, this interpretation is basically uh, superheroes are about returning us to the, the stasis of the world being the way it is, and supervillains are about trying to change something. Uh, and so it's way more interesting to play the villains because it puts everything out of balance. Uh, whereas if you're the superheroes... Uh, you have to wait for something to put it out of balance. The GM has to come up with some way for it to be out of balance, and then your job is just to return the marble to the bottom of the bowl, which, I mean, the GM can make some, uh, weight the marble so it's trying to roll away, but it still feels like uh, the, we all know that the place for the marble to go is back to the bottom of the bowl. Right. Um, but your interpretation... My interpretation is I think the best superheroes actually don't do that. Uh, that's the really boring Superman, the Superman who, like comes and saves cats out of trees or whatever. Uh, but great counterexamples are like the X-Men, which are like a an activist group, basically. Like, you're, you're trying to change the world. Um, even Batman, like, Gotham is a horrible place. And, uh, I mean, they've come up with kind of all kinds of reasons for this. But basically, his marble is heavily weighted towards falling downhill. And if there was no Batman, there's uh, the city is going to be wiped out. More so than it is with Batman, because I've done that a few times. But sure. uh, the I think the best heroes uh, and Superman, the the version of Superman that doesn't fall uh, fall to this is um, Superman is kind of like the perfected human showing us the next stage of human evolution. If if uh, Superman is all about wonder and showing us like uh, these amazing things, or if you go back to very early Superman and he's more of like a, a social justice uh, crusader, like his first appearance, he's taking down. Um, uh, slumlords and stuff like those are interesting characters who are heroes who are not out of balance. And I think that's actually why the characters become popular in a lot of ways. And the kind of sanitized, uh, oh, they're just returning us to the status quo version is it's not that interesting in any format. It's not that sure. interesting in comics either. Yeah, yeah. So, so superheroes as if if the change that they are making is actual societal change. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is actually a big part of heroes that really take off. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they take off to the point where they're so popular that you can't continually have change. So then they kind of become this this just kind of icon in stasis. And it's sure. a little less interesting. Not, not the best time. So we'll play a super game with uh, universal basic income women <laughs> and, uh, and make, this, make this kind of stuff happen. Yeah. My, I mean... 
<laughs> uh, I, I, I kind of want to play that. I want to play like the uh, the X Men trying to change the world, and that's uh, Capes or um, yes, Capes. Okay. Sorry, there, there are several superhero games that came out around the same time that I always confuse. Um, but Capes is uh, you're the younger generation of heroes, and there is a bit of that kind of like you're maybe out to change the world. Like you're the, there are other heroes, but uh, you probably have a bit of an agenda, more or less. Um, huh. Okay, sorry, I got you off on. No, 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 no. It's too many, too many thoughts, and I, I woke up, I woke up too late today to think about <laughs> them all. Uh, my, my big last one is Doom Pilgrim, uh, uh. which I played the other day because talking about uh, balance being controlled by some external force. Doom Pilgrim is really weird because the way that the intro is written, uh, you tell everybody, "Hey, I might not be able to make it to my end destination, but." Uh, you know, because you have to, you know, I have to ask you questions about this and you could kill me on the way. Nobody ever kills you. Mm-hmm. People are way too nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really, it's really weird. So Doom Pilgrim is, you you post on some social network. I did it on Twitter recently. And all of, and you're basically the single player character. And everybody that follows you and feels like commenting are cooperative DMs. And they're all just making up small little snippets of story uh, to to lead you on your way. And your questions to them are somewhat set by uh, the one pager. It's a very it's a very simple game. It's very easy to learn. It's awesome. Go buy it. Um, but also, you can ask questions that are just you know I really wonder what's going on here and what do I see over there and what what kind of stuff is going on. But every so often you ask questions like, do I get away? Do I have to leave something? And people are so nice, at least in all the games that I've played. I always expect to die before I get to the end because it's like, all you have to do is say, no, you don't get away, you die. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Like, I can't do anything. Nobody ever does that. Mm -hmm. Ever. And it's weird because balance-wise, we talk a lot about GM power. Yeah. And about how the GM is always allowed to say, rocks fall, you know, you're all dead, roll new characters so I can kill them too. But nobody wants to play that way because it's not very fun. Um, but even so, it f- when you swap, because I usually play as a GM role, mm-hmm. even when I swap, I feel like the other people, somebody's got to be that person because you hear stories about that person. Yeah. But even when you have 50 GMs, they don't do that. So Yeah, it's interesting because uh, with Doomed Pilgrim, also Vincent's game, uh, I initially thought like it was uh, misnamed because kind of like you, I haven't seen many pilgrims get killed. But now I almost feel like the they're doomed to wander forever. Is that what <laughs> sure. they're doomed to? Like, yeah, because the, at the end you're not actually there. You just made it through that one section. Yeah, there. I, I've never because uh, nobody is going to give you exactly what you want either. Everybody is going to complicate things, and everybody wants to see the story keep on going. So they're kind of doomed to limbo. Like uh, the the pilgrims are never really going to get anywhere. They're just going to. Keep on having more. You know, you're going to keep on asking questions, and somebody else is going to ask questions, and eventually, uh, somebody probably isn't going to want to keep on posting. And that's where pretty much every game ends. That I oh no way. So so the thing about Doom Pilgrim is that to end, you have to make the conscious decision to end it. Yes. And it's not fun to end it. Yeah. Because and because you just you just want to see what people keep coming up with, right? Yeah. And. The way that Vincent wrote it is after the first combat, if you survive, that's supposed to be the end. 
You're only supposed yes. to have one encounter. Yeah. And then you're done. But nobody does that. Exactly. Like, even in my game, I had one encounter, and I was like, well, that's not really an encounter. So I did another encounter, and then I'm like, fine, I guess I'll end it. Because I really like ending games and feeling mm-hmm. like they get to a conclusion. But it's really easy to just kind of let it fade out. But that's not satisfying. Yeah. I would rather have a satisfying ending than an unsatisfying, maybe twice as long game mm-hmm. of posting. Um, go ahead. No, no. Uh, I think you're you're exactly onto it. Like the the doomed is not so much that uh, you're right. There is supposed to be an ending to the game, but even that ending doesn't feel like uh, the pilgrims really get what they want. But like, you're back to the same place that you were at the start of the game. Yes. At the start of the game, you say, "I've been wandering for a long time. Here is the inciting incident. Mm-hmm. Go." And then at the end of the game, okay, I made it through that inciting incident. And now I'm wandering again. Mm-hmm. So you've done the full loop, right? Yes. And you could very well immediately start another game of Doom Pilgrim from that point, mm-hmm. and which is why the game doesn't tend to end because people want to. Yep. Um, and it's really hard to be to be. Oh gosh, what's the word? It's really hard to say no. I'm going to stop this game now. You know, maybe we'll do a to be continued later, but mm-hmm. I'm going to stop now because. You want to see what everybody's going to come up with. And that's kind of uh, the the fact that the game doesn't end with a destination. It ends with, uh, okay, I could just do this again, is is what I mean by, like, they're, they're doomed to limbo. Like, there there isn't a, um, a strong end state where you actually get where... Uh, like, the, the pilgrims are doomed to wander forever uh, in that there's... I've never seen anybody write their encounter such that they, they actually like get are, there. Get there, <laughs> and nobody who's GMing it is going, or you know, the crowd of people who's GMing it for you is going to choose that either because they everybody wants to throw out more ideas. Um, man, now I kind of want to watch for any games of Doomed Pilgrim I see, and just as the GM jump in there and be like. And guess what? You're at your destination. <laughs> just just post it. I'm actually, I'm really strongly, I want to play it a lot more on Twitter. So the Vincent, I'm almost certain, wrote it for G+, originally. Yes. Um, there's a lot of things in there that are kind of artifacts of how you play games on Google+. Like mm-hmm. he mentioned that if you want to follow the game, then you have to, you comment with this particular comment. And on G+, that... Uh, subscribes you so that you get notifications and things. Translating it to Twitter is really weird because, for one, I can't make the huge rules post. It's like a 10-line rules post. Yeah. So, you know, I compress that instead of making an image because it... I was about to say, that's why you make images on Twitter. Oh, that's it's the worst. I don't want image of text. I want to <laughs> actually have an accessible game, right? So the, then the question is, do I reduce the amount of rules in the opening or do I rephrase any of them, or do I just make a 10-post-long Twitter thread, which is what I ended up doing this time, mm-hmm. that you have to seriously be interested in following to actually get it? Or maybe do I link somewhere else that is the rules? Like, it's a weird system. And then I can't say subscribe by commenting, because Twitter doesn't work that way, unless I include everybody in, in the, the remaining conversation, right? Yeah. So instead, I had people subscribe. I, I had said, I said, if you want to be involved in the DM side, comment on this, and I'll just put you on my own manual list. So I'll okay. add you in when I have a question for you. So instead of the G plus sense, which is anybody should answer, 
I used this person specifically should answer because they're on my rotating list of GMs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a way, I had a, I was in control of all of the balance mm-hmm. because I, I could ask anybody almost any question. The only time I was at all constrained in those questions is you know, if I felt like following the rules mm-hmm. and I felt like something was actually going to be a conflict, then I roll dice and talk about stuff. Yep. But as far as the people playing were concerned, because I know a lot of them actually have never seen the game before, I was just making everything up. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to roll any dice. I was just going to back and forth with them on Twitter for a while, yep. you know, talking about whatever on narrative, which is a weird balance thing. Like... I could go forever on Twitter, because I because especially when you manually at people mm-hmm. on on G plus they often end with a with a whimper because you don't man you don't ask somebody specific a question a lot. People will yeah. often just put it up to whoever. Yeah. And as we know, working here, if you put anything up to whoever, nobody will respond because they yep. all think somebody else is going to do it. Yep. Um, but on Twitter, I can be like, Hey, Suzanne. Where should what what happens next? I, I think that's an interesting point because there's a number of other uh, less formal games that have taken place over Twitter in the same way. Um, the best one, so Epi's done this a few times with. Uh, he often does it with polls, so he lets everybody vote on which thing happens next. Um, the one that I like the most though is uh, Ryan North, the dinosaur, the dinosaur comics, comics guy. guy yeah. Squirrel Girl is his current comic, uh, which is. <laughs> Amazing! Yes. Uh, that he did a uh, basically a Twitter choose your own adventure thing of himself stuck in an empty pool, and he was actually posting like he literally was in a pool with a, a few things and, and was just asking, took pictures and stuff. Yeah, and was asking like, okay, Twitter, how do I get out of an empty pool? This is you know, here's what I have with me. And basically made it a choose-your-own-adventure game. That's awesome. Uh, and he got out of the pool. I, I want to say a dog was involved somehow. Um, <laughs> I'm only half remembering this, but yeah, it's the, uh, again, it's an interesting balance because there, in in his version, which was very successful, partially because he's more famous, has a lot of Twitter followers, um, and he's great at writing funny stuff, um, there was a return to to equilibrium. Like, he gets out of the pool and is like, okay, we're done. Whereas uh, with Doomed Pilgrim, uh, or kind of more open-ended games, it, it takes... Somebody has to be on the hook to decide that it's over, right. uh, because they're kind of um, in some cases. In some ways, this is the uh, downside to a game that doesn't have a return to equilibrium. Is that it's always going to keep on moving. You're you're like on a continual, very slight downhill slope, right? And uh, you you can watch that forever, uh, but you're uh, being permanently without equilibrium is basically being Sisyphus. Like, you're, you're, the ball is always going to keep on rolling, and you always have to keep on pushing it. Yeah, um, yeah, this is the problem I have with campaign games, is yeah. that I really, I really like endings. And unless somebody is in charge of saying, cool, that's the end of this campaign, we can play in the same world if you want, but, you know, this is over, stuff is done, uh, and, nobody, and nobody wants to do that. And so I think it's really, it's curious thinking about Doom Pilgrim as, you know, it could be a one-shot or a campaign game based on how the single player that's really running it decides mm-hmm. to actually finish it up. And I feel like those whimper games end up being super unsatisfying. Yeah. On G+, they're way unsatisfying because the post is way back in the past. Mm-hmm. Nobody's ever going to find it again. Only the people that were subscribed are even paying any kind of attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So it's, it's this weird system. So do you so, have a third? Oh, uh, sorry. This actually, uh, that was my third. So okay, first, cool. uh, like, versions of D&D as all games that uh, try to get you out of equilibrium and the degenerate case of you all meet in a tavern being equilibrium, basically. Right. Like, all, all the ways that D&D doesn't work when, when people kind of mess with it, I think boil down to they try to add too much equilibrium back in. Sure. Uh, and then two exam- my other two answers are uh, two examples of out of equilibrium, which is uh, a downwards, in, uh, a unbounded downward spiral. It has some backup, but uh, something like Torchbearer or a uh, something that really does offer the potential of a return to equilibrium, like Kagematsu, um, where which becomes a one-shot game. Sure. So that that's my insights around it. But now I wish I had thrown in a superhero game as a, a third one, just so I could rant about how good superheroes are out of equilibrium some more. Bonus entries. My bonus entry would be Action Castle. Action Castle, okay. So, parsley, uh, Action Castle is a parsley system type thing. It's basically, you know, those old school adventure games like Zork, where you say, look, or pick up book, or whatever, and then the computer says horrible things back to you because it doesn't understand you. And you can run this as a role-playing game. Who, do you remember who designed this thing? Jared Sorensen. That's right. That's what I was thinking. It's up on Kickstarter... I think it'll still be up on Kickstarter when this releases. Probably. Maybe. Uh, it's it's pretty awesome. Um, it's the kind of thing that I would will totally run on Twitter uh, mm-hmm. when it finally shows up. Um, but yeah, it's also got the... It's just a much longer one-shot. Because this is the hard part about running any of these kind of games is maintaining interest until the ending. Mm-hmm. And because of a campaign game doesn't necessarily have an ending, you will... It's. It's impossible to maintain interest until the ending because it's just infinite regression, right? But but I think that's the interesting thing about campaign games, at least in my experience, is Mm -hmm. that sometimes you do... uh, They are deliberately set up to not allow much the return to equilibrium as like a a built-in option. Mm -hmm. Um, But sometimes you you find it. Like, you, you magically balance the marble where it doesn't look like it can go... And when you walk away from that, when like the coin lands on its edge, uh, and you it lands, it stays there. Uh, that is a real magical ending, as opposed to the kind of games that do have an ending, but that ending is more guaranteed. I wonder if something that would help me feel better about these kind of games is just searching out those moments, or even anything close to those moments, mm-hmm. and saying, "Okay, that's the end of the season." Are we going to play another season? Mm-hmm. That way, that way, I'm not feeling like I've just wasted three years of a campaign because it didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. But okay, we had like four seasons in there, and now here's a new season. If people are not up for a full new season for commitment, then that's fine because we've at least done a few. Yeah, that, that's actually an interesting design question. I think um, it's another one of those ways that uh, classic D and D is actually really smartly designed for this because there is a sense of. Uh, Kind of expeditions, like you, you tried going into the caves of chaos once. You managed to come back out with a few people dead. That could be your end right there. It, it's uh, a pseudo equilibrium sure. where you're you're not quite to the oh okay we took care of everything everything is happy we have no more reason to adventure, but it's a point that's close enough to an equilibrium that you can kind of say. You, you can make the choice. Um, it's teetering on the edge. Yeah, it's like uh, Neil Stevenson has a book, Seven Eves, mm-hmm. which is really two books, right? Uh, it's Have you read this yet? I have not. I have a copy. or uh, I actually gave my mom my copy, but uh, yeah. Okay, so people make really a lot of fun of this guy for, for not being able to end books at all. Uh, I think he ended the first book of Seven Eves really well. 
Um, he just didn't realize that it was two books. He uh -huh. thought it was one book. So it's it's a people leave Earth because there's going to be this horrible asteroid destruction and they have to make a life in space. And the entire first half of the book is making a life in space. And then it ends with, and then the seven people had to plan for whatever. And it's a beautiful ending, and that is where I should have stopped. <laughs> uh, and then it continues from, okay, you know, 10,000 years in the future or whatever, things are different, and let's continue. And it's like, no, that was a great ending. Like, yeah, life goes on and more stuff is going to happen and this isn't happily ever after. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that you have to keep telling a story. Like, this, mm -hmm. is, a, this is a great ending to a story. And that's uh, an interesting point in Vincent's own games that um, I don't think it undermines his, his Twitter post, but uh, Apocalypse World has ways to... Um, return a character to basically an equilibrium. You can retire a character. Right. Uh, and it, it's an advancement. So you, you have... Um, the you choose idea it. is that you choose it at some yeah. point, but you, you retire the character from play. You say, okay, this character is done. They go off to safety, basically. Um, so there is an equilibrium there, and it provides a potential stopping point uh, kind of like that. It's kind of the... Right. Uh, this character rides off into the sunset. Okay, guys, do we stop there? Or... Uh, and, you know, theoretically, everybody could be racking up XP at about the same rate and all have the option to do it at the same time. Sure. And you can actually all say, okay, well, we all get to safety. Right. Um, it's, it's an interesting option to have those moments where uh, equilibrium seems possible again to kind of create those seasons that you're talking about. Uh, now I kind of wish more games had that, actually. Um, well, to go full circle, like, Go does this. Mm -hmm. Go does not end because the game tells you it ends. Go ends because the two players say, yep, that's good. We're, yeah. we're done. I can't make any forward motion. You can't make any forward motion. So we're good. That's it. Uh, or somebody who resigns, but whatever. Like Either way, the players are deciding, okay, we're all good. And there's a lot of modern game design that doesn't, most modern game design doesn't work that way. Most mm -hmm. modern game design is, okay, you made it 10 turns. That's it. We're done. Like. We are fixing the time the time frame, but RPGs don't do that. RPGs tend to say this does not have to end ever mm -hmm. because we don't want things to end because endings are not fun most of the time, and you don't you want to see what happens to that character. You want to see what happens when you know they sail off into the into the east or whatever. This is in some ways the superhero problem that if your character is going to go on forever, then this um, like just slightly disturbed equilibrium becomes the new equilibrium. Right. Like, uh, if your character has to keep on going forever, they can't really grow or change all that much because either that's going to get overwritten again because you have to keep on changing, right. or it's going to have to return. Like, you, you can only do that for so long. Um, and so I think creating games that have that sense of a moment where we can all look at it and feel good walking away is is really powerful. And I hadn't actually thought about that. That wasn't in my notes or anything. That's that's us talking and me thinking, well, actually, that's, that's one of my favorite things in games is that feeling that uh, the game reaches a point where where we can walk away. And a lot of games encourage that to some degree by, by showing you points where, oh, okay, may, maybe this is a good... Maybe things are resolved for now. You can throw them out of your room again, but maybe now's the time to walk away. Right. Cool. 
Well, I think we covered everything. Uh, <laughs> everything, all the games. RPGs solved. Okay, we've solved balance. Uh, <laughs> so I guess the podcast is over. Yeah, I'm going to uh, keep mining Twitter for for various questions. So yeah, so if you want to borrow, bother uh, Sage at old underscore Fortran or uh, myself at Hacker, Hacker Blinks, we are willing and able to take any and all questions. Yeah, uh, we we occasionally check the AQ podcast account, but not as much as we should. Uh, so it, find us directly. You, yeah, totally. If you were listening to this, you may even already know us. So <laughs> probably already know you us. You probably already know us. And if not, uh, come and meet us virtually on Twitter and G+, and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and give us questions. So uh, until next time, I'm Sage and Adam, and this has been another question.